Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Dan at Vertex School. I'm the head of the animation department here. And today I have with me John. Howdy. Hi. Hey John, could you could you do a little bit of introduce yourself? Let me know where you're working currently. Um John Fielden. I am a supervising animator at the Mill, uh, the Los Angeles office. Fantastic. I've seen some of the work that you guys do over there at the Mill and uh, some really, really cool stuff and Looks like you get to work on a ton of different projects versus staying with one project for a really long time. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was brought on because I have a big background in game cinematics. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are trying to get more and more. And they, they had this, this client for EA Apex. Mm -hmm. um, the mill generally, yeah, it's a wide range of like the Energizer Bunny and, you know, just a bunch of VFX commercials and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been back to back to back basically on Apex jobs. Okay. So the same characters quite pretty often, things along those lines. Yeah, I mean it is it's like it, it is new content every time. So it's like we're supporting the game. It's a seasonal game. So every three or four months I think every four months, uh, there's a new chapter of the game or whatever, which introduces a new character, sometimes a new map, a new gun. Uh, so it's a cool place to be like, um, it's marketing like a new character or a gun or something like that, but in yeah. a pretty fun way, it's not like play this gun or whatever. It's just like, right. here's a, here's a new story. And all the fans will be like, Oh, that's this guy. And that's this, Oh, I see how it's all connecting. Cause they have all this different, they have more than just what we do as like lore and background for this stuff. So yeah, yeah. it's marketing, but not marketing. So that's kind of I cool. gotcha. That does sound really cool. Um, so you said you had a bit of a background in game cinematics and things along those lines. Can you tell us a little bit more about some other projects that you've worked on uh, or some other studios that you may have worked for? Yeah, I've worked at... Um, for game cinematic stuff specifically, I was at Blur for more or less two-ish years as a permalant. Um, sorry, my camera's bugging me right now. This won't, this isn't showing my USB camera. Ah, now it is. Gotcha. My laptop camera's all like janky. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so I was at Blur for like a better part of two years um, with occasional like one break in the middle where I went to another studio and then I came back. Um, so uh, there I was on the whole range of like the first one I did was like a Tom Clancy, I think, game. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm finally at Blur. Like, oh, this is the big leagues. And then yeah. like it was like the easiest mocap job ever. It was just like the mocap worked. It was just like. Pose the fingers, right. add a little bit of recoil to the one gunshot, mm -hmm. and let everyone else do the do their work. Right. Uh, but then I got to do um, uh, some Lord of the, some stuff on a Lord of the Rings trailer, um, where I also dipped into crowd simulation. Oh, very. Because cool. at that point, mocap was getting pretty boring, um, mm -hmm. and that was like a fun thing to to, to play with. Uh, I also did some some of their keyframe short uh, trailers for. Uh, there was a League of Legends one that I did with the on, on the spaceship. Um, then there was you know just a bunch of different stuff. I was also worked at a company called Frame Machine for a while, and they do in-game cinematics for right. NetherRealm. So okay. I did in-game cinematics for Injustice 2, and then I went back there another time and I did I got to do what was really cool uh, a fatality for Mortal Kombat. Nice. That was pretty fun. I was like, what? This, I get to do a freaking Mortal Kombat fatality? That's crazy. Yeah, the, um, I, those rigs yeah. seemed really, really cool. Because, I mean, like, everybody had the ability to have different body parts falling off and things coming out of them. And uh, I'd always want to see what, I always oh, wanted to see what 
Haynes looked like of those rigs. No, that was nasty. No, it was the rig side for what I don't know, maybe Netherrealm has something fancier, but we were using Motion Builder. Okay. Um, and there were some some nice motion builder rigging in the sense of like if you move an arm, like it deformed pretty okay. And I think they had some helper bones that did fake muscles. Um, okay. But I, it was so difficult because I had one where it was like this new character, I forgot her name because she had a code name that then changed what when they right. finally released the game. But like she like split this guy in half and then she ripped off his arms. And anytime yeah. that happened, you'd have to like bring in a whole new rig that was just the arm. But because the way Motion Builder works, like everyone likes to be like, oh, Motion Builder's. Uh, it's real time. It's super fast. And it's because it's inside of this tiny box. Right. You can't do too many custom things. And uh, it, so it would be like a full human body. If I had to like break an arm, like I did yeah. one with Sonia and she broke the dude's arm and it needed to go beyond the limit of the elbow. Yeah. I couldn't unlock that attribute. So I had to bring in a full new rig and pin it at the elbow. So then there was like a whole, like an empty skeleton with an arm. Oh, with wow. Just this part of Geo to break the arm or to rip somebody in half anytime that happened you'd have to like swap in and out holy to, moly to multiple skeletons that like you need to keep pinned at a certain point and right so i know like ik and fk matching with some rigs can be kind of difficult but now you're talking about matching on two completely different rigs like from frame to frame having something break that'd be extremely difficult yeah it was a, it was a bit of a pain in the butt and motion builder with the hik rig setup is also very different than a normal setup and you have if you dial in the settings right it can help you if you don't have them dialed in right it's just a complete nightmare um yeah. it's managing like it's a lot of constraint work like uh, um i'm happy to see more and more animators speak about it on twitter and stuff like the necessity of learning how to make like what I call like a temporary rig with locators. Yeah. Like, that's like so crucial to like, oh, an adaptive workflow. Right. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I actually, um, it's something I put into the animation boot camp for Vertex School was kind of light um, constraint work and, and, and talking about child parent relationships and things along those lines. Cause what I realized when I first, when I came out of school, it was all based off of film. And when I first got into my first job and they're like, oh, okay, well here, here's a, uh, here's a character and here's a sword that they're going to have, and it's going to be on their back. And then you're going to need to put it into their hand and they're going to need to start to attack with it. Well, I had never done any constraint switching, any world space changing, any of that stuff in my schooling. And it was like one of the very first things I had to do. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you know, this was this was uh, 15 years ago. So there wasn't a lot mm -hmm. of knowledge out there either for me to just go and Google it and be like, oh, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that wasn't really big. No. Yeah. So back was, in the day, it was a nightmare. Like it was so confusing and, and like I, Maya has solidified some things. So they're a yeah. lot more stable now. But I, if I remember the days of people doing like visibility swaps where it's a handoff where you have a rig, you have a sword that's on the back and a sword that's in the hand and you just turn on the visibility and I'm like. That is exactly Ooh. what I ended up having to learn how to do, but I still didn't have it attached to the character whatsoever. So yeah. um, while we don't spend an awful lot of time on that, I really only take about a course, uh, like one lesson to go through some of the different constraint systems and way they can be used and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. Combining a couple of different things, because as you know, you can't just use a regular parent constraint when you're going to want to hold an object and let it go, because if you want it to move inside of the hand, you can't make it move. So then you have to have a secondary bone in, or that's actually on the character that can actually move with the character and move around. Mm -hmm. and you then, do. It's helpful. Right. Um, I have my. I, I actually wrote a script because um, some philosophies that I learned with the pose manager that they use at Blur mm -hmm. uh, and based on some other stuff, like I actually had them, uh, I had them add it to all of our rigs at the mill, but cause they didn't have a prop controller, mm -hmm. but I have a script 
that again, any student out there listening, like learn basic scripting because it can get you out of jams. You can like customize the way that you work, the way that your brain works and uh, get, get stuff done faster. But like uh, you don't need it in the rig. It's just like one group and one locator underneath of it. Mm-hmm. And you can do a thousand things. Right. Yeah, there's um, I just love how powerful a lot of that stuff can be. And mm-hmm. what I real what I remember from when I had to first do that constraint, and as you had mentioned, we had to do the visibility thing and all that back then, is uh, how much time I took from other animators and from our uh, technical artists at that time because I didn't know. And I felt I had like this sense of guilt as soon as I started working because it was my first job and then it was immediately like, hey, do this thing. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that thing. It's the first thing they're asking me to do. And then I had to go ask this person and I didn't want to keep bothering them. So then I'd be like, okay, well, now I'm going to go ask this person something a little bit different about it. Now I'm going to go ask this person something. And uh, I really didn't want to put that weight on so many other people. And I really wanted to be able to come in with a little bit more knowledge than I did. So that's kind of why I've added Mm -hmm. a little bit of constraint information into um, Man, I've, I've been pre so even at the mill where I'm working alongside other veterans who've worked in the industry for a long time or whatever, mm-hmm. I preach to them my method of doing constraints mm-hmm. and it takes them a second, but once they adapt to it, it's a very clean, simple approach that just takes two keys and I can, I can pick up a cup like this. I can set it down. I can pick it up in a new spot. I can change my hand. I can animate it inside the hand. Yeah. All of that stuff with one locator, one group, and like two keys. Yeah, that's and pretty much like, so. It sounds like we probably do a lot, a lot of it the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, switching gears a little bit, um, a lot of the times I feel like when students are learning, there's a couple of places where they have like these pitfalls where um, they may not be doing something that they really should. And one of those is, is when you're first getting into doing like a full body walk, and when you look at someone walking, you, you have a couple of those things that are really, really obvious. The, the feet are moving and the arms are moving. Then they run into these pitfalls of the hips aren't moving nearly as much as they do in real life. The shoulders aren't moving nearly as much as they do in real life. And I don't know if it's more of like they just start to get confused because now you've got a level of spine that goes up and then you've got the clavicles and everything else involved. So you end up with these very robotic arm swinging and leg swinging kind of things. And um, I'm actually currently in the process of creating a handout for those exact things. Is there anything that you could really talk about in order to help people understand how the core plays so much into balancing while walking and things along those lines? Um, trying to think back to some of the stuff. So in terms of just keeping it more of like an organic, like physically, like mm-hmm. body, like I, I just use like the cheat of like contrapposto, I think was the term that they used in school. It's just like, if this arm's moving forward, this arm's moving back. And if that's the case, then this chest needs to be rotated this way. And it needs to be, ro- it's like, it's. Oh, I lost your audio here for a second. Just popped out for a moment. I don't know if it's a, yeah, I got nothing right this moment. I can't hear you. Now I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. I don't know if that was a a lag thing or what that was. That was weird. Yeah, you dropped out to me. Sorry. Um, Uh, So you're in the middle of talking about. um, Yeah, it's like. It's like a rule of thumb that gets me out of a jam. Like, obviously, like, there's there's tricky situations when someone's, like, turning. Right. And based on their step, you're, like, you have to do that weird, like, the arm does, like, kind of a slow back and forth instead mm-hmm. of, like, doing an extra one. But, like, right. it's, like, if this arm is here, then I know based on some basic rules that I need to put this arm here, the, the foot here, like, add that twist and, like, always thinking about the full body. Like, every time you make a pose, like, and, and just working through those controllers. But the most important thing to get a good habit of is just getting a good philosophy of 
you know, working from the the most root controller out when you're doing stuff like that, or like having your rig set up in a in a, in a helpful way to let you tweak and adjust stuff. Um, yeah, it, I think you might run into like fear of problems if you're doing like uh, a walk with FK arms that are in body space mm -hmm. or IK arms in whatever space. Um, yeah. That it it makes it hard to to tweak a pose without messing up all this other work that you've done. So maybe you like back off, you know, like, it's fine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I feel uh, you kind of hit it. The, the nail uh, on the head right there is kind of like, so if you don't have things in the correct space, so if I turn my body, my arm kind of moves with it instead of it being world space. So anytime you want to adjust something, all of a sudden your arms up here and you're like, well, I just spent like an hour or two getting that angle. Right. And then I figured out something here wasn't right. And mm -hmm. I'm like, you kind of, I see those kind of fears happen a lot. So everything starts to get more and more stiff because they already worked on something too far down the line before, you know, like maybe they got all their finger movements perfect. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, well now let me work on the chest. Like, oh no, you've got to start and work your way outward through everything. Cause that's the, really the proper way you're going to get all of your overlaps and things along those lines anyway. Yeah. And like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm very preachy about FK arms in world space. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes the life of a CG animator a lot more. Just it just makes everything easier in my opinion. But if your rig doesn't have that, or if you have some other way that you like to work, like that's where learning about baking to locators. You can, I've had to do it on some smaller jobs that I've picked up. That like, mm -hmm. it was a cheap game rig that didn't have all the the bells and whistles I like. So it's like, well, fine, I can just constrain this and I can just make my own world space whatever I want. Yeah, be free from that. Yeah, it. I I find I work in the same exact way, and I try to stay away from IK limbs as much as I can, unless they're being connected to something. Because mm -hmm. just having to worry about making an arc where it could be just a simple rotation, like uh, it just yeah. And I find a lot of people can think about IK easier, but then it's so much harder to polish and get those arcs without adding mm -hmm. a key on almost every single frame, which is yeah insane. Um, talking more about uh, like the opposition of body parts. And what I find is if you kind of start with where the, a lot of motion actually comes from, which is like your core and your hip area, as soon as you start getting those things really working, and as you know, in the, in a walk cycle, it's almost like a bouncing ball. Once you start getting those things moving, it really kind of flows from there. And once you get the yeah. hips right, that means you, you have to automatically start to rotate your spine in a certain way just to keep your balance and then have that asymmetrical balance. So then you rotate the one hip forward, which means you have to kind of rotate your shoulders the other way. And as you flow through it and just work it one piece at a time versus having to try and figure it all out at one time, it just seems to loosen everything up and just, it kind of moves smoothly from there. Um, so uh, another, yeah. pit, another pitfall that I find that students run into a lot is Thinking about words a little bit too, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, too literally. So if you think about exaggeration, for instance, and as soon as you think about exaggeration, especially as a student, you think of uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and Hotel Transylvania. And while, yes, those are like the pinnacle of what exaggeration is inside of film and, and getting stylized work, there's also exaggeration even in realism when we're doing uh, animations from realism or even in mocap and things along those lines is if you have a character throwing a punch, for instance, and you have that motion captured, yeah, it's going to look great. It's going to be a great little a punch that you have there. But in realism in games and in film is not appealing. It's not fun. It's not entertaining. So we might remove a few frames through that punch to make it really impact a lot faster. You might end up, uh, when the person cranks back to do like a roundhouse or something along those lines, you might need to, to push it a little bit further just to make the silhouette read more and just make it more appealing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you've used exaggeration in, in some of the lesser forms in, in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. It's, it goes back to like even the Nine Old Men talked about it, like realism versus believability. And it's like, like especially with a mocap job, it's like, yeah, it works, but it doesn't look that great. So like even on, on the, the job I'm on now, like there's not a whole lot for us to do because like the the 
because of the performance and the context of what's going on in the story. It's not like a fight where you have to clean up and really push a whole bunch of stuff right. all the time, but there's still every shot you can clean up, you can push, you can exaggerate where like, yeah, the guy did a gesture like this. And it's like, well, I mean, if I were to like pull this out, it's just like refining the poses and like, you know, like even if, like if you're taking an art class, your your instructor can always show you how you can push that pose. It's finding those moments to clean up and look at it maybe a little bit more as like a graphic design than like having, because like, especially if it's a mocap job, like the body mechanics are mostly solved for you. So now you're pushing the design and the appeal of it. So it's like, I go through um, the extremes. I still try to think about it in those terms because not just because like, let's let the nine old men said, but it's also like in motion, like those extremes will, if you go, if you put a key on this extreme, you put a key on this extreme, all the stuff in the middle is still going to work and it's just going to hit nicer and it's going to just be cleaner and, and sharper and, um, you know, better, but with less keys. And you're not right. like, cause if you don't put that, that, if you don't put that exaggeration, on a layer because I work with a lot of layers. Um, right. if you don't do it on the right frame, then you're going to be chasing it a lot. Yeah. So it's just about finding the the the, the, the most uh, efficient places to, to put that in. Right. Yeah. It's, so I talk about exaggeration quite a bit because as you had mentioned, it might just be say taking something that at that is absolutely real. It's mo capture. It's motion capture. It's scientifically correct. The anatomy of it is correct. All of the body mechanics is, is correct, but you can add a little something to the realism because what is really boring is if we were watching something that was rotoscoped. And you see that happen a lot with student work because they're like, well, if I can just copy exactly what happened here in real life, then there's no way for them to say that it's wrong. But yeah, it's not wrong, but is it entertaining to watch? And if we're just rotoscoping everything, <laughs> why bother with doing animation at all and not just have a real person walk across the screen? Well, even with, with Apex, like the characters are pretty, they're not like realism, like blur, but like, it's still like humanoid. It's still like, you know, but uh, what I always try to remind my animators and my team is like, you're not just applying the mocap to it. You are translating it to the design. You're translating it to the character. So like, the actor on stage, like with mocap, like you're going to have different actors. Like we sometimes we'll have a different performance mocap actor than a stunt actor. Right. And like, and then sometimes we have to mix in the game animations and stuff like that. So it's like to make it continuous to make it feel the right guy. Like, you know, Gibraltar, we're never going to mocap someone who has his physiology. So you're going to have to make accommodations for the physiology of the character, the design of the character that they have pouches or whatever, like, yeah. Um, you'll need to restrict the motion that you got that was, like you said, correct, but it's like not applied to or translated to that character correctly. Right. So you always need to think about the design of the character and the style of the project. Mm -hmm. So uh, you talked a little bit about working in layers, and we touched that a little bit uh, here at Vertex School, and we kind of we kind of jump into it a little bit smaller than I'm sure that you do on your day-to-day -day work. Uh, so we talk about a little bit about maybe putting um, the root controller on a layer simply because in games, a lot of the times root controller is actually still and the game is what's controlling that. But in order to get the motion correct, we add that to a different layer so that we can move it and then export it without it. Uh, and then other small little things like if you're animating a robot and you want to have a jitter that happens throughout the entire thing, perhaps it's good to put some of those on layers as well. Where do you find that, especially uh, with working with so much mo motion capture, where do you find that you like to have multiple multiple layers and what are some things that you might want to keep on one layer versus having it on your base? Yeah, so one pitfall that I, I don't know, I, I know like old school animators still have this issue and it bugs, bugs me to no end. And I think it's the thing that students uh, might get bad habits of in school is um, like you have a layer per character mm -hmm. or you have a, like all these too many layers. I don't do too many layers, right? Okay. Yeah. At most I have like two or three okay. layers. 
the and I, I label them in a way that like obviously makes sense, right? So there's like the base there's the base animation, but then like um, on a mocap job, I'll do like mocap adjust, mm -hmm. and every character can go into that layer. Like there's no reason to make it, it makes your job harder putting them into separate layers. Right. Um, and motion builder made it even more of a difficulty because like, yes, we're probably talking specifically about Maya, but um, I've worked in motion builder and I've worked in XSI and they handle layers differently than Maya where Maya is like explicit. Mm -hmm. You put the stuff in the layer. Um, XSI is uh, a container. So like okay. the, the character rigs come in and like all the controllers are in like a container is what it's kind of called. So okay. if you make a layer while you have a character's controller selected, that layer now affects any controller in that rig. Okay. Uh, and once you deselect that character, that layer is not visible anymore because mm -hmm. it only exists per container. Okay. Motion builder, they're global. So right. on a motion builder job, it was really frustrating opening someone else's shot, and they're like, "This is the Batman layer. This is the Joker layer." Right. And it's like, "Yeah, but like they're touching each other, and now you're having to remember to pop between them, and you might accidentally mess up." And so, yeah. Anyway, I have like one a, one go-to layer. Usually on a mocap job, it's just mocap adjust, and that's where I'm just going in and I'm just making my my broad stroke changes. Um, okay. If there's like. Um, bigger redirects i'll put that on another layer but if i have bigger redirects on another character if it's the same concept of like a pass i'll put it into that layer like okay i have gotten a little granular sometimes where it was like this is the foot cleanup pass mm -hmm. so anything that has to do with like correcting feet which right. i put as many controllers as i need to right so foot correction might go all the way up to the hips right yeah so I'll put all, all the controllers in there, but I'll just try to keep organized about that. But it's generally, it's like one or two layers. Um, and like, I know a lot of people that I've worked with um, uh, in film or especially keyframe heavy stuff, like they don't know how to use layers very much. Um, yeah. And I use them a lot. Like we just did this really big keyframe job that I can't wait to share with everybody. But um, I had some artists who were struggling with some of my notes and I was like, just put it on a layer. And he's like, I don't know what that means. Cause like, even right. like on a keyframe job, when you get down to like a director saying like, tweak it like this, it's like, just put it in a layer and you can, you can make broad stroke changes on a layer or like, even if it's like a, a walk cycle in a game and it's mm -hmm. like, you know, can you make him slouchier? You can go in and edit the curves or you can just go to the, go to one of the good extremes really refine that pose and change it from like this to this mm -hmm. and then just kind of go through those extreme moments and just tweak it back and then boom you yeah. not had to like go in and like fix every single key or like it's yeah it's broad stroke changes i think that's another reason why i have again another class just lightly touching on how to use layers and things along those lines because in my own education i didn't have any knowledge of it and for the first several years of actually being uh, in the video game industry, uh, being a complete keyframe animator, I didn't really know how to use them. I never really touched them. I didn't do anything. And it wasn't until I got to my first mo capture, uh, motion capture job where uh, I was just working as a contractor. That was the first time I've had to learn how to really use layers because in, in motion capture, you pretty much have to use layers or you're gonna be fighting a, a lot of keys. So um, that was when I first started to learn it and it was happening to be in Motion Builder and um, I'm not exactly a fan of Motion Builder, but uh, that's where I first started to learn what they were and how I could use them. And then ever since then, in every job I've had since, I use them uh, maybe a little bit more granular, granular, that word, <laughs> granularly. I'm getting yeah. tongue twisted here. You know the word I'm trying to say. Granularly. Yes. Um, so uh, sometimes I actually will do them a little bit more than that. And um, as you had mentioned, like uh, with uh, foot corrections, things along those lines. And some of the times why I might put that on there is I might be working on a game that's in pre-production or working on a game that's still early production and they don't know the exact speed that they're going to have characters running at. So, but they want to have some animation in there. So they're like, okay, we'll make the character run. And you're like, oh, well, how fast? Well, right now we're looking at like maybe six meters a second or something along those lines. And you're like, okay, so you animate to that. 
And then down the line, they might say, oh, you know what? We're actually going to be changing that to like 6.2 or 5.8 or whatever, instead of having to go in and work on absolutely every single piece of the body to get that work again, I can jump into that layer where I had some foot and hip corrections and I can just adjust things a little bit here and there. <clears throat> and then as you had mentioned, the really broad stroke things where you had a character come up and do like a sword swing and they're like, okay, well, I, I like it, but now I want the sword to actually come a little bit more from the side. And instead of having to go through and readjust absolutely everything on every frame that you had keyed it on, you can go in and, as you had mentioned, find those key frames where you want it to be at a certain spot and add that to a new layer, add how they exited to another new layer. And then you don't have to spend two days going in and finding every little curve and adjusting them. So I appreciate uh, you talking about that a bit mm -hmm. with somebody that has a lot of experience yeah. with layers. Yeah, a lot of it's just like thinking about it in terms of like passes. So like you could put finger work in there. A lot of times I put blinks on their own pass, like on their own layer. Yeah. Just because like um, it's something that I'm going to want to shift around independently pretty easily. Right. Uh, so that's the way I'll think about it too is like, is this going to be something modular that I need to like just because like a blink is generally the same keys over and over again. But right. if I put it on the base, it's mixed in. That's not going to be helpful. I can just like, and then there's, there's also subtleties if you want to dive deeper into animation layers about additive versus override layers. And I could put a blink on an override layer with the weight animating up and down on it. Mm -hmm. So I can just like plop that anywhere and I could play blast it and I could be like, mm, I think that blink would look better a few frames later. And I just shift a smaller cluster of keys over. Yeah. It's non-destructive. It's easy. It's quick to iterate. It's all about iterating quickly. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, shifting gears again, and you th think going back to when you first started to animate and when you first started to look for your first job, um, we all know a lot of those pitfalls that happen with demo reels where you have somebody that will put in every piece of animation that they've ever created into a reel and send it out to the first job. And it's five minutes long. Nobody's going to sit there and watch a five minute long uh, demo reel. So when you start thinking about those sorts of things and, and being in your role, I'm sure you're looking at a lot of demo reels when you guys have uh, positions open right now. What are some of the, the pitfalls that you still see coming, especially from uh, more green animators that you just want to say, hey, stay away from doing this or perhaps add something um, that you don't have or otherwise? Yeah, it's... It's like you said, like, even me still, like, I've been animating for, well, if you count my previous years, it's been, like, over a decade, right? Mm -hmm. but my demo reel is a minute, yeah. a minute and a half. Like, I, when I was in school, it was, like, a two-minute long demo reel. And then, like, finally someone was telling me, like, later on while I was in the industry, like, no, like, shorter is better. Yeah. And there was always, like, the, the mantra of, like, you know, like, you're only as good as your weakest shot, which mm -hmm. makes a lot of anxiety. I would rather look at it like, are you showing me something new? Are you showing me some, is, does this new thing that you added to the reel, is it exciting to look at? Is it something, is it showing me a new skill? Right. Because if you have like a walk cycle, you show me another walk cycle. If they're both good walk cycles, I'm bored. I don't need right. to look at that again. I don't need to see that like, you can repeat the same thing over and over again. Like, mm -hmm. so it's more about like, is this new? Is this showing a new aspect of what I can offer you? Right. So that's the considerate. That's the biggest consideration that I think a lot of people don't think about. And they're like, this is a good shot. And this is a good shot. And this is a good shot. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, you're not telling me anything, me anything new with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times when, like I don't have to do it too much, um, but when we when I do review reels, like I don't necessarily sit through the whole thing. Right. I see a shot, I see maybe a couple shots, and then I just kind of start popping through. Especially if I see that it's a long reel, I'm like, Ugh. okay. And I can look at something, and in a couple seconds, I can see what quality of level of animation you're at. Mm -hmm. And I can just pop through and be like, okay, so they've worked on these types of things at these skill levels. Okay, cool. I can get an idea of it, which yeah. sucks because yeah, you put a lot of work into this animation and maybe it's not how it was getting watched. But 
Uh, just think about that. It's, it's I, I think it's the reality of realizing how much time the people who have to actually look at those things. Because a lot of times for me, when I was asked to review uh, demo reels, a lot of the times it was like, hey, we got this guy coming in today. We're going to have you um, for an hour interviewing him at this point. Go take a look at his reel. And then we've got three other people coming tomorrow. And I'm like in the middle of work, you know, and it's like an email kind of pops up. Hey, take a look at this. And it's like, oh, I'm in the middle of something. I got to go to a meeting here in a couple of minutes. I'm like, mm -hmm. so I do the same thing. It's like I watch the, the beginning and then it's kind of like, okay, I got an idea of where the quality level's at. But we work with, uh, so this is when I was, thinking back to when I was at Cinemax Online Studios, I did a lot of creature work. Like that entire game had fantastic creatures from all kinds of different things. So then I start skipping through them like, do they have any creature work in their demo reel? Okay, I'm not seeing any creature work. Well, you know what? We're gonna have a couple of in-game cinematics. Let me see if they have any acting work. And you know, you just kind of look through and like, okay, well, do they have this and do they have this? And then it's like, okay, well, they can do this thing. How can we adapt that to our, to, um, what we could ask for, okay, maybe we could find them a position here on the gameplay side, or maybe we can find them something over here. But that's really what it comes down to is, as you mentioned, a variety. Like don't put 20 walk cycles in front of each other, no matter, even if one is like this huge guy and another one's a little dude and you wanna show that you can do them differently, maybe show them back to back real quick. But other than that, I probably would not show any more than maybe two just to show that you're not just creating a vanilla walk cycle that's on everything. Yeah. And you can even put them into one playable as, right? Where you oh, right, yeah. comp, comp walk cycles next to each other and just be like, here's some walk cycles. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. I can look at them and be like, okay, that looks good. Um, and I don't want uh, I don't want to make it seem like I expect like a junior or like a brand new animator to have like a breadth of of work to have. Like, I've I've been in those instances where it's like, hey, there's like this this guy he's fresh out of school. Like, here's his reel, and it's like, okay, well, we don't do anything like this. But I can see the the level of care he takes in his poses, right. or she, um, and the timing, yeah. and I can pull out in good information. So if you have a shot that's really good timing, or if you have a shot that's like, oh, this is some really cool poses in here, like, yeah, those are utilities that I can be like, okay, well, you know, this person's never done mocap, but I see he understands how to make a good pose, yeah. or this person's never done. I don't see much creature work on here, but I see good body mechanics in like a creature's body mechanics, just horizontal, right. you know, it's like, we all have the same bones and muscles for the mm -hmm. most part. So it's like, I can get them to translate it to the next part, but so like showing good different areas of fundamentals is more important. Yeah. I, I think you actually hit something big there as well as you started talking about the timing and weight and things along those lines. And that is really something that uh, I see personally as something I'm going to work on and continue to work on for the rest of my career. No matter what I'm doing, I can always get better at showing my weight. I can always get better at timing and I can always get better at things like spacing. And I feel like a, a pitfall that some students run into in the, in the beginning is, okay, I worked on the bouncing ball and I understand what weight is, and I understand what timing is. Now I'm just gonna start working on poses. Like, no, make sure that you still are incorporating your timing and your weight and all those sorts of things throughout. And I feel like sometimes I need to kind of reiterate that every now and again uh, with earlier students is, okay, yeah, like that is what we did here, but you need to make sure that you continue to incorporate it, um, especially with things like when you start talking about twinned timing and things along those lines is in the very beginning and you have only a few different controls on, you know, very generic uh, student rigs and they go, okay, well, make sure you're not twinning the tail here as your ball is bouncing. Make sure that there's a little bit of mm -hmm. offset between everything. And then they kind of almost forget that as the character gets more extreme with more body parts, like a full body character. Um, and then you start to see those things come in again where the hips hit at the same exact time that the arm hits or the shoulder hits at the same time, the fingers hit, that kind of thing. And it's like, I, I, always going back and remembering the 12 principles of what overlap is and what timing and yeah. weight and all those things are. It's in, in a weird way to put it probably, but like kind of like how I was saying you need to adjust, like if, even if you shoot reference of yourself and then you're going to keyframe it onto a character or mocap onto a character, you need to like adapt those things to the new context. Like mm -hmm. 
the bouncing ball, I still give notes that are like, this is a squash pose. This is a stretch pose. Like mm -hmm. you need to translate those fundamentals as you go up, as you get more complicated. Like the, it's like, I like kind of blur my eyes in a sense of like two characters fighting each other. Like you can think about it in the choreography of a bouncing ball right. and apply that down into a full complicated character all the way down to fingertips. Mm -hmm. and let that inform and like that in basics of like body mechanics like you can kind of cheat your way through a lot of stuff just yeah. keeping those things in mind it's like don't forget about it it's not like i was able to bounce the ball now let me do a character it's like i can translate that up bigger, bigger. right yeah i i find that a lot of times when you talk about squash and stretch you'll hear people just thinking about it in just certain sections where it's like, okay, well, the stretch of the arm and this, like how it squashes when it does this and it stretches doing this. But like, if you think about the body in an entirety as a, as a bouncing ball and a squat and, and the entire body squashing and stretching, it's not just like the torso squishing and stretching over a pose. It's the fact that your legs are bending as you move down and your mm -hmm. spine is bending. So that's your squashing as you're getting ready to do something like a jump. Then yeah. as you leave the ground, your body's stretching out, not, not even physically, like literally taking the vertices and bending them, but more or less everything in the spine and is curving up and everything else moving through the body mm -hmm. is also considered a stretch. And I think a lot of the times um, that can be also lost in kind of translation when you talk about squash and stretch. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a Looney Tunes, like literally stretching, like right. this is a squash, this is a stretch. My arm yeah. didn't change its volume, but like visually it's compact and now it's extended. Yeah. And those mechanics, that's a bouncing ball. Mm -hmm. So um, switching gears again and going back to when you're first looking for a job and things along those lines, especially as a student. And I think about the way that I did it back then versus the way that I look for a job now, which obviously as you as you gain seniority, you gain a little bit more of a um, an ability to just kind of look at only certain studios or in a certain area and things like those. Uh, but when you're a student, you need to be a little bit more broad about it. Um, thinking back to when you first started looking and how you might have changed what you did back then versus what you would do now, do you have any uh, suggestions to new students or new animators looking to jump out into the workforce and looking for different studios? Oof. I don't know. What I did was a little less orthodox. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, I, I, I was helped out. I did have some in, some some really valuable internships, but they didn't turn into any jobs. So mm -hmm. I had a little bit of time while I was here in L.A. Um, and I, I literally just cold showed up to, to places. I would go onto LinkedIn and I would find the research, like the HR person and I would just show up and be like, I'm here to talk to this person. And then they often patch me through. <laughs> and I just meet them and just talk to them, but uh, yeah. it's I, I don't know how I would find a job in today's, especially today's uh, um, environment. It's a lot of it is like, especially if you're going to school. Like what I, I try to remind students who went to my school is like your classmates and your peers keep in touch with them that network is going to be super valuable because like if one of them gets a job don't be like oh he got a job and i didn't it's like cool like now they're going to be meeting more people from around the industry and they're going to start to hear about other opportunities and help pass you along and it's a big thing that i've promoted with when i was freelancing um and i've passed on to other freelancers is like share the wealth share with your peers like be like hey there's this job opening over here like you know um but I mean, be ready to like send out a lot of applications and not hear anything back. Like, yeah. um, it's, I don't know how many I sent out until I did, but like, I just kept working at it and I didn't give up and finally something caught. Um, and, uh, one of the advice advices I was given was like, because there's so much work like in LA or like Vancouver or Montreal, like if you find a place that you can move to, like I can't, I couldn't start off in, in Vancouver because I'm not Canadian, but maybe you are. Uh, but find that local hotspot that you can get to and just take any job you can 
to be there. Um, and then uh, a lot of, at, at least in the VFX and um, like the commercial world, things happen fast. Like literally when I got my first job, it was like, I had kind of given up and went back to upstate New York and I was about to take a job at like the local mall. And then I sent out one more application and they were like, hey, we'd like you to come in for an interview. And I was like, oh, uh, when? And they're like, tomorrow? And I'm like, ah, that's Saturday. So then they're like, oh, I mean, Monday? So like, I got on the next flight. Yeah. Like it happens. And then I started the next day after that interview. Oh, wow. Like, it, can, it happens fast, especially if you're looking at commercials. Um, in terms of looking for work, I would also caution against being too specific. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't know about games, game cinematics or any of that stuff. Like, coming out of school, I was like, ah, oh, Pixar, you know, Disney. Like, I want to be one of those film places. I hadn't right. thought about the world of commercials, and they're really fun. They're really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so just broaden your search uh, and be open to things you might not have expected. Right. Yeah. So um, same with you, where I ended up going to school and where uh, my training was almost all film related. And when I first started looking for a job, it was just as you mentioned, I went to Pixar and Disney and ILM and Blue Sky and, you know, all those big name studios where it's like, OK, well, this is what film is. And then quickly realizing, oh, hey, I, maybe I need to broaden my scope a little bit more. I started looking at some cinematic studios, um, as you had mentioned, Blur and uh, a few others like that. And I, I again, I found that I needed to broaden even more because when I first started thinking about it, I'm like, OK, well, I've got yada, 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 yada. I've got like eight places to apply to. Well, as a student, eight places is not a lot of places to apply to. So then after realizing that, because it only took me half a day to apply to all those places, I went, okay, well, obviously I need to do more. I need to get my reel out there to more people. Um, I started looking at studios that might have in-game cinematics and I started looking at that. And what I ended up getting a plot, uh, what I ended up getting my first job for was uh, for Axis Games and Fraxis was working on Civilization V and they were in pre-production. And what they wanted was they needed somebody that had a little bit more acting um, and uh, they'd have what they call the leaders. So I ended up working on in-game animation as my first job because I had some acting experience because that's what a lot of the school that I went to was, was acting stuff, not action. So that was how I actually got in. And then uh, funny as you, as you brought this up is um, make sure you keep all of your contacts, whether they're schoolmates or your first job. And even though if your first job is that little tiny indie studio and there's like three other people there or something along those lines, Stay in contact with those people because I can tell you from my very first job, I think I've applied to like two jobs in the last 15 years. Other than that, it's like, oh, hey, I found out my studio is going to close down. You kind of get your name out there and you go Twitter or Facebook or wherever and go, hey, guys, I'm finding out that my studio is getting ready to have mass layoffs. I'm getting kind of nervous. And I have people just call me like, oh, hey, dude, I worked with you 10 years ago. You got really great work then. I'm sure your work's great now. Send me over your latest reel. And the next thing I know, like, I didn't fill out a single application. And I'm going and I'm doing an interview. They're flying me to L.A. or they're flying me to uh, somewhere in Canada or otherwise. And I never even applied. You know, it was just I talked to my friend that I knew that worked at this studio or I talked to my friend that worked at that studio. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Let me see, let me see your reel and I'll pass it up. So those, and this is actually where I falter a lot because I'm not great on social media. I don't like, I, I, I have some social anxieties. So I have, I have some problems reaching out a lot, but it's something I fight in order to keep those connections because you never know when that's going to pay off. And exactly. some, some random time at the, you'll find that your studio closes or you'll find that you need to move for one reason or the other. Um, and those are going to become really important. Um, for me, uh, in the last five years, uh, I started running into some medical stuff, and I found that working from home was going to be almost mandatory for me, uh, which you can see I work from my log cabin here now. So when it came to that, especially then, right now, obviously, working from home is a lot easier because everybody's working from home. 
but uh, six years ago, five years ago, it wasn't as well known of a thing and it wasn't supported very well in studios. And even just a year ago, it still was not supported very well. And I had people say, well, yeah, man, I'd love to hire you. Can you move to LA? Uh, well, no, I can't. My wife has private practice here. So uh, my my windows were really limited, but, limited. but what I found was my friendships are what were the most important because they said, hey, yeah, I know this guy can't move here and I know we're looking for somebody in studio, but I worked a long time with him and I know that he's going to be putting in a ton of work at home. You don't have to worry about that part. Um, he's got sealed lips, so you don't have to worry about him talking to anybody while he's not here in studio. And that's how I ended up starting to work from home was exactly that, my connections that I had with people. Mm -hmm. So uh, I really another, appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, another thing that I would say too is like, I feel like a lot of students will, or people trying to start, you'll be like, oh man, like maybe you're trying to cast a wide net, but you're only looking at studios that like have open positions. And you're like, oh, they don't have anything open. A lot of the right. sites, a lot of their sites are like, hey, you know, like just contact us. And it's like, yeah, like contact them because they probably don't have a job right now because they're not posting it. But if you can get them to look at your stuff, you can start that relationship. Then when you message them again, even if they didn't respond to you, if you message, message them again in a year or so, and now you have new content on your reel, a lot, this is, that's the HR and the, the like, that's their job at recruiting is to like, remember you and mm -hmm. they will. And it's remarkable. And they'll be like, hey, maybe uh, two or three times later, they'll be like, oh, hey, I mean, I've been, watching your stuff as you submitted it is you're looking really good now. Like you've progressed a lot. Like yeah. we'd like to bring you in um, like those fostering those relationships and being willing to, to reach out to a studio that's just on like a cold, like, Hey, you know, like I'm just trying to start out. Here's my real, like, you know, just want to start a, a relationship or, you know, just line of communication. So maybe down the line, it might work. Something might work out. Yeah. Like just simple, something simple like that. Like hopefully they'll read. And then, Maybe down the line it will work out. It's probably not going to happen right away. Yeah. But. I got, I actually got really lucky and talking about exactly what you did. My first job again at, for Access Games, they were so early in pre production that they didn't have, they only had one other animator on the team so far, and that was the lead. Um, and they did not post for the work yet. They did not, they didn't really start looking at all. And when I first started looking into the industry, I really want to try and stay to the East Coast because I was currently in New Jersey when I was looking and there's no studios in New Jersey. But I started to try and broaden out a little by little by little because uh, I really didn't want to move across country. Both of our families were from South Jersey and so on and so forth. And I finally, I got to like where Baltimore was in Maryland and that's when I found Praxis Games and they didn't have a job posting and I applied anyway and uh my demo reel and what got me in like i said was the acting and even more so the lip syncing is they wanted to have their first game where they had real lip syncing happening in their game and without even having an open job i applied and that's the first job i had was with those guys um so as you had mentioned don't wait for them to say hey we're looking right now because then number one is you're going up against possibly thousands of people that are going to apply to that job. Uh, and then two is if you're applying at some random other time and they don't have a ton of demo reels coming in and yours is the only one they received that day, like, Hey, guess what? You've got the spotlight for a moment, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, I find that's really important. Yeah. I've, I've known too many people who have kicked themselves who were like, one dude was like working on like an animation test of a dragon, but then he didn't think it was like good enough. So he never applied to, to DreamWorks. Oh, wow. And then he met randomly at like CTN or something, one of the animators there and they're like, oh, that looked pretty good. You should have applied. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think it was good enough. And it's like, yeah. you missed out because you just didn't, it's sending an email, like it's not hard. It, it's the fear of rejection. You do, make, uh, you do want to make it not like a form, same thing, you just copy paste into everybody. Right. Um, but I find uh, your your own self critic is your 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 own worst critic or whatever the word is I'm looking for there is, and you're always going to find something that you can make better and stuff along those lines. But as you had mentioned, like yeah, that guy could have possibly worked at DreamWorks if he just 
just let it go and it's not going to be perfect. You can work on the same bouncing ball even for a year and find something that you could change with a simple bouncing ball, you know? Um, so realizing that there's a finishing point and a time where you're like, okay, this is what I can do in a reasonable amount of time and send it off. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that as well. We've actually already been talking for about an hour now. Is there anything, um, any tips, tricks, or anything else that you'd like to, to bring up to, when you're thinking about a student getting ready to jump into the workforce that you would like to say, or do you think we covered our bases pretty well? I don't know. I, I don't have anything specific else. Um, just for me, it's a lot of technical side stuff. Of right. Just knowing your rig, knowing how to make it easier on yourself the way that you work. Everyone works differently. But um, if you know how you work best you can adapt it to any situation actually that makes me think of another topic <laughs> so i'm going to bring that up for one moment you just mentioned it and uh i realized this about one of my first bosses that i worked with was he was very old school so he was not used to uh like the newer foot controls where you had all the foot brakes and the toe rolls and the heel rolls and the side rolls and the pivots and all that stuff he was used to just he had an IK control that put him there and he had a control that moved his toe. So every animation that I saw of his there afterwards was just that. He didn't use any foot breaking stuff. It was all hand keyed. He moved it where he needed to in order to make that toe stick, that sort of stuff. And that worked for him. And anytime he tried to jump into the more techie stuff of getting all those sub controls to work, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it very well. Because as soon as he needed it to like go back to where it wasn't planted anymore over that one key he'd have a pop or otherwise and it was it would bother him um so he just never did and that's what worked for him and that's what's been working for him for probably over 20 years now animating and uh for right. me and for me i love those little controls you know i love because for one it, it reminds me oh hey yeah maybe i should add this in here uh, the other part for me is it was built specifically for it so i know that it's going to be done correctly when i use that um, but that's the way I work. Cause I'm a little bit more new age. Uh, the, the rigs that I worked on when I first started to animate were actually the, some of the best in the industry at my school. So, uh, I actually had a downgrade when I got into the real world cause they weren't quite caught up to where the, my school was. So, um, for me, I was so used to those controls and I still continue to try to use those controls as much as possible. But I know for some people, they would rather be basic. Maybe they came from being a 2D artist, you know, uh, and they're not used to that stuff. So I appreciate bringing that up. For me, the foot roll stuff, I love playing with it in a rig, but I don't have the time in production to manage all those extra curves. Right. Like if someone's foot is planted and wriggling around, that's cool. But once you do a walk, like you said, you need to figure out how to turn on the, the foot roll and then if you're animating the foot break degree or not, and then when once it's off, then you need to bring it back to be able to do the next. And then if you don't manage it right, the ankle is going to be doing weird pops and stuff like that. And right. I'm like, I know that the, an the ankle IK pivot point is what's going to affect my knee, and I don't want knee pops. So I'd rather just make be able to manage that one line rather than uh, – turning on and off control curves and like then forcing stuff to stick. And like, I actually have a new philosophy that I'm going to be tr trying out soon with the uh, temp modifier rigs. It's a okay. concept I'm getting from, from stuff I'm seeing in Blender, but um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, there was something I was going to say about, uh, shoot, what was it? Oh yeah, just the other thing I would highly recommend to anyone starting out or anyone in the industry already um, is always be willing to adapt your workflow. Like I just, which is funny to say after saying like, nah, I don't fuck with the feet stuff. But <laughs> um, even to this day, like I'm constantly tweaking my Maya UI in Windows. Mm -hmm. Like I, if I see someone who uses like the four square, like the the, the hot, like the the four grid thing, mm -hmm. immediately I disrespect. I don't, I think they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and I'm using like, cause especially now in 2018, there's like all these custom panels and you can really like customize your workflow. And like I saw a post on Twitter, I think it was Kyle Figgins was like, oh yeah, put the timeline at the top of the screen. It's a lot easier. And I'm like, ah, 
I use a tablet. It does hurt my hand to be like scrubbing like this all day long. Mm-hmm. And that radically changed a lot of stuff. And I'm still to this day tweaking windows and pop out windows and all this kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and everything with my workflow, I'm trying to like always be open to adapting. And like when I was in school, that was a big thing for me was finding any tutorial I could at the time, which was harder. Um, and learning and then trying a school assignment with that method, like layered method or post to pose method or however someone talks about how they animate and how they think about it, like try it out. Yeah. Because you'll find that some things work better for you than other things. And you'll also find if you're, if you're a, get enough of that into your soaked into your brain, you'll know like contextually the layered approach is going to be better on this shot for me or this is going to be better for me in this context and it's not like everyone likes to be broad stroke like layered's better for physical stuff like no i mean if it is for you cool there's other ways to look at it like brian horgan has a cool little tool that will bake off a controller and hide everything and just put like a like a checkered cube Mm -hmm. and just pare it down to just controller by controller way to look at like everyone has all these different ways of looking at and manipulating animation try them out and even when you're in the industry still be willing to adapt and try to think about what you're doing to be right because uh, efficiency is what really matters in the end like that's the biggest problem when i look at someone's reel is like if there's a really polished shot i don't know how long you took on it right and i don't have that much time we have to do so much footage like i'm sure it's the same in games it's like you want to have good work but you also want to be fast and that's how you once you catch that first job if you are fast and efficient and fairly capable you will stay yep yes so um i actually uh talking about efficiency and changing work style and things along those lines one day i went to a co-worker's desk and i was just watching them work because i was just there to ask him something. I don't remember what it was. And he actually was a modeler and I was an animator, but I was there talking to him about something. And he had this device on his desk that I had never seen at the time. And it was a 3D connection mouse. So it was a 3D mouse. When And he played with this little puck that was on the mouse and it moved his camera around like crazy. And this was right at the time when we were changing from working in uh, 3D Studio Max to becoming a Maya house. So everything kind of changed on my keyboard. And at the time they didn't have those cool little scripts that would change your keyboard over to what 3D Studio Max was and all that kind of stuff. So for me, especially still being a green animator, I'm like, I was lost and I was like really frustrated with everything. And he had been using this mouse and I asked him about it. I was like, what is that all about? And he's like, oh, I have actually an old one that didn't doesn't have as many features if you want to give it a shot. So for the next probably eight years I worked with a 3D mouse and because I found that I was so much faster because Mm -hmm. I could just, I connected with that thing really well in my mind and it just allowed me to do everything I needed it to. Um, I started realizing as I got more into techie stuff, uh, I was having some bugs created from that particular mouse, but, um, but for a while that made me move so much faster and then that gained me more respect from my other animators and then mm-hmm. like you had mentioned uh, the first layer of layoffs that i was ever through i survived it over some seniors because i was fast uh and i was capable of doing what i needed to do at probably a smaller paycheck than they had so uh, whatever it is you know yeah i mean like i'm I, like I, i'm always frustrated by somebody who doesn't want to adapt their workflow or like they're like oh, i just use like the default maya settings and like i've seen the the exact like the the excuse of like well then i can go anywhere and it's always the same but it's like not that hard to like port your custom setups i put, throw all of mine on the on my google drive and i can download them anywhere i work and it's yeah. easy to set up so there's not really a good excuse to not have hotkeys and like a lot of people i know are now moving to because once you start using hotkeys really well you've run out of keys to hotkey. Uh, and a lot of people are getting these little like side keyboards, mm-hmm. custom program commands to. So then now their brain is expanded out onto this new keyboard and it's more efficient for them and quicker. Like, yeah. uh, I think it was Carl Figgins again, he had made a, a simple post about marking menus. And I'm like, I always like the quick little hot, like the default ones in Maya, 
I thought it'd be kind of hard to do, and now I have two marking menus that are for different tasks, but they're so feature-packed, and so it speeds me up, because I don't have to like look at a menu. My, it's our, the, and I'm using less hotkeys, because now it's just like two things to pop up a quick thing, and I just, especially yeah. with the tab, it's like just gesturing. I'm like, boom, boom, okay, constraint offset, da 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 pick walk up and down, da 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 and do all this kind of cool shit, and yeah. it's like, if I didn't adapt or like be open to changing my workflow, I would be 50% slower. Yeah. And in All video games, and in, in video games, you have to be adaptive as well, because you might be working in an unreal uh, game engine in one studio. And then in the next one, they're working on a proprietary game engine and the workflow might completely change. And if you're like, Oh, well, this is how I've always done it. Like, well, guess what? If you can't get your work into our game engine, why do we have you here? So you have to adapt a lot in video games, especially. Mm -hmm. um, and then also other, just other things. Every rig is going to work differently. Even from the same person who rigs something over and over again, they're adapting as well as they're getting better and they go, oh, you know what? Yeah, I know I did it this way in this rig, but guess what? Now I'm doing it this way in this rig because it's going to be better. And now you have to adapt to the way that they've changed. So without adapt adaptation, you're, you're going to get left in the dust with everybody that's willing to adapt. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that, man. That was that was really great. Um, I appreciate that because it, it's one of those topics you don't think about an awful lot as far as uh, learning to animate is being able to change quickly and frequently. Mm -hmm. so, thank you. Well, um, yeah. But we uh, we have run out of time at this point. Uh, I want to thank you again so much for coming. Um, do you uh, want to? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, hype up anything that you're working on or your website or anything that you have that you want to talk about? No. no? All right, great. No. I mean, they, these, the things that are like the stuff that I work on at work, like it goes out and right. the trends on YouTube. Okay. So, well, thank fine. you again so much. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our students will very much appreciate uh, your feedback and uh, not your feedback, but your, your inputs and everything that we talked about today. It was, beneficial for them and i mean even a few things that you said kind of reminded me of some things i want to do myself and uh, i really appreciate your time today well, thank you. thanks for having me yeah absolutely man thank you so much and you have a good day see you all right thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this and i want to ask just two things of you number one make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on apple uh, stitcher spotify really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do number two make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.